Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're with us. And welcome to week two in our new Easter series where we're walking through the six major things that Jesus accomplished as he was dying on the cross. This is an amazing series. Whether you've been a long-term Christian, a brand new Christian, if you're seeking and trying to understand this Christian thing, or actually you're skeptical and you're not sure, all of us can center, sort of enter into this conversation well. Now, I love the global church. I love that the church is found in almost every ethnic group and formal country on earth. And one of the things I love doing is I love collecting art and images from the global church. And one of the collections I have are nativities, but one of the other collections I have are, are crosses. And let me just show you a few of them. This one I picked up uh, years ago. I think it's from Zaire. This is this incredible crucifix. Uh, representing, of course, culturally how Jesus is perceived as he died on the cross. One of my favorites. And then this one I picked up uh, again years ago. This one's from Mexico, totally different, and yet representing the same amazing act. Uh, someone brought this actually back uh, for me from Thailand. This is made actually of recycled uh, paper and represents, of course, the cross. I love this. Is so love this one. It's so cool. And then this one, here's another one. This is actually a replica of uh, one that's found actually in France. It's from the medie uh, medieval era. And of course, again, sort of more that European classic understanding of the cross. And then actually when I was in Israel uh, two times ago, I was in Nazareth or Bethlehem and just picked up this very plain cross made of olive wood. Now, again, we know this. The cross is probably the most recognizable symbol in human history. It's worn by hundreds of millions as an image of faith. Many other people wear it, I suppose, for fashion. Others wear it and have no clue what it is. And some people even wear it uh, related to mockery. And yet, as we see all these different styles and cultural expressions of the cross, we need to continually ask ourselves the question, what in the world was Jesus accomplishing when he was dying on that literal cross? And like I shared last week, here's how we begin. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are seven phrases that Jesus utters as he lays dying on the cross. And the second last thing he said comes from John 19.30. He said, when he received a drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I asked the question, it is finished. Well, what was finished? I mean, the cry implies something's being accomplished, something's being done, something seems to be planned out beforehand. And yet other people are like, no, Jesus was saying he was finished, he was done, he had given up. This is sort of like a defeat, a death gurgle, I'm done. Well, there are lots of reasons why Jesus died. We're exploring them. But let me reassure you, this was no declaration of defeat. This is actually triumph. Unlike what so many people think, listen closely, Jesus' uh, death was not a mistake. Jesus' death was not a political act only. It wasn't just some religious leaders of the day getting their way only. It wasn't just the Romans killing off another so-called threat to Roman peace only. It wasn't just another leader getting killed off for standing up against injustice only. Though all these factors are real, historic, and part of the mosaic, part of the stained glass window, part of the colors that make up this incredible kaleidoscope, it's heaven's view which is most significant because actually what Jesus was ultimately accomplishing on the cross was to help us get back home. I love when Jesus said in John 10, 17, the reason why my father loves me 
is that I lay down my life only to take it up once again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. And just like Jesus said, He decided to lay down. He decided to die on that cross. And then, of course, by the power of the Spirit, right, He physically comes back to life again. And after Jesus physically resurrected from the dead, when he came back alive, those that were walking with him and talked with him and ate with him and hugged him and were there were so changed by this life-dramatic changing situation and also the ongoing message. They tried to find words and images and ideas to express the power, the beauty, the magnitude, the life change, the hope, the kindness of this shocking act. And like I shared last week, they looked around at everyday life trying to find ways or words or images to express eternity, actually to describe the most significant act in history. And so they chose images and language from their everyday life. They chose it from the court of law and from finance and accounting and the world of business and the world of Jewish religious worship and the idea of personal relationships and the gritty, violent, bloody experience of war. And these six sort of categories or images, then as we put them all together, we begin to see the full picture, the kaleidoscope of what truly happened when Jesus lay dying on that cross, and of course, later when he came back from the dead. Now, last week, we only looked at one image. It was the image of Jewish religious worship. Today, we're going to look at three more of the images. We're going to look at the battlefield, we're going to look at the world of business, and we're going to look at reconciliation and personal relationships. Let me begin with these words that Jesus utters before his death. It says in John 20, uh, 12, 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it only remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Already, we begin to have an understanding of image one. That somehow the cross event is involving war or battle. Now, it's interesting. Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world or the ruler. Now, in Greek, this is an actual formal title. This is the highest official of a city or region in the Greco-Roman world. So, of course, God is the ultimate, of course, Lord over creation. But what's being declared here might be uncomfortable for us, but it's true. Satan is the functional Lord of the world. He actually has authority over not just the globe, but all that live on and in the globe. I mean, think about when Satan was tempting Jesus. Satan at this point was not lying to Jesus. He, at the third temptation, offers Jesus the world. And he could. Luke 4, 5, the devil led Jesus to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said, I will give you all of their authority and all of their splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. Basically, he says to Jesus, look at all the military might, look at all the different sexual expressions, look at all the power, all the money, all the political power. I own all of it. Do you want it? Later, even after the cross event, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4.4, The God of this age, another name for Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers, those who don't know Jesus, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Let me ask you, if you're a Christian, do you believe this? The bulk of humanity, good, kind, loving, faithful, religious, not religious, spiritual, not spiritual, agnostic, atheist, at this moment is incapable of seeing Jesus, understanding Jesus, or embracing his message. They are literally blinded by the demonic because, of course, they are the owners of this world. Every non-Christian you meet is positionally blinded. I mean, Paul put it like this in Ephesians 2, talking about what it was like pre-Jesus. When he says, in pre-Jesus, that is encountering him. Ephesians 2, and as for you, before you met Christ, he says, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is basically, from heaven's view, reality. Every single human being is not, sin, not only sins, but is enslaved to sin, is spiritually dead, it's following at least one or two versions of worldliness. Religion is one expression of that, or all sorts of politics or philosophy. And also, knowingly or not, is connected to and owned by the ruler of the air. Slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to Satan. Satan is a cruel master that owns us and will not let us go. I mean, one of the best verses that brings this home is 1 John 5.19. We know that we're children of God through Jesus, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Wow. Now, the amazing thing about Christmas and Easter, of course, is God broke in. God has entered into this darkness and has begun to replace that wrong kingdom with Jesus' Father's kingdom. Christmas, of course, is invasion, redemption, and the beginning of conquering. And there is a way, of course, to join the better side, the loving side, the forgiving side, the creator side, through the life and work and person of Jesus alone. He's the one who brings us into the other kingdom. He's the one who brings life. Now, the question we need to ask is, well, how did Jesus clear a path for us to get home and become children of God. How, how did this becoming a child of God take place? Well, the cross. Remember, the cross event is the time, Jesus said, where the prince of this world would be what? Driven out. The cross event is battle. The cross event is gladiatorial. The cross event is the ultimate death match. See, Jesus didn't just come to be a substitute or step in to satisfy God's holiness. He didn't just come in to take God the Father's just wrath and cancel our sin and like we learned last week, become a willing scapegoat and our sacrifice. Not only did he come to make all the Jewish religious uh, rituals that God had given find fulfillment from picture to reality, he also comes to deal with an enemy we cannot overcome. It's best said like this in 1 John 3, 8, the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So we're about to see that two or three images sort of get fused together. We're going to have the image of the battlefield, the image of personal relationship, and even business. Now to see the image of reconciliation, for example, relationship, that is, we get a relationship personally with God, and to see the image of a battlefield, we need to go to this very old ancient Christian hymn that Paul himself included in this book called Colossians. And if you've got a Bible, virtual or physical, I'd love you to turn to Colossians 1.15. Now this song begins before Jesus' resurrection, before Jesus' death, before Jesus' crucifixion, before the Calvary moment, 
before the death sentence is given, before his trials, before the arrest, before his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus' life or teachings or his birth. This song goes back before Malachi and Jeremiah, Solomon, David, Saul, before Samson, Joshua, Moses, Joseph in Egypt, before Jacob and his 12 sons, before Isaac, before Abraham, before Cain, before Abel, before Eve, before Adam. It's actually even before land, water, sun, moon, stars, day, night. The, star, the song starts just before there was a start. And we only understand the victory Jesus wins on the cross when we start just before creation. The song starts like this in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. From all eternity, Jesus in his very nature has always been and always will be the image, the essence of God. Jesus is the exact visible representation of God. He illuminates God's essence. In Jesus do we only see who God is. And of course, this means Jesus is God. You can't have God's DNA, his essence, his image, if you yourself are not him, because of course, he shares it with no one in the full sense. The song will soon tell us that he is sent to rescue people from darkness. That is why as as Christians, with assurance and confidence, we can say God is holy and God is love. He's not just the image of God, though. It says, the song continues, he's the firstborn over all of creation. Now, don't misread this. So many people do. Jesus isn't part of creation. He's above everything in creation. And firstborn is a title from the Old Testament expressing status. This is not saying, like a Jehovah Witness would tell you if they knock on your door, that Jesus is the first created being. It's an actual title from Psalm 89, meaning king or sovereign. In other words, here's what's being declared. Jesus has the the image and essence of God, and he he outranks on all things in creation, including all creatures with power, whether people, kings, angels, demons, or the devil himself. Jesus, let me read it again is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all of creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, things visible and invisible, whether throne or power or ruler or authority. All things are created by Jesus and all things are created for Jesus. See, this is wild. (laughs) Through Jesus... All things were created, things we see and don't see. He's not part of creation. God the Father used Jesus to bring forth reality. Humans and stars and fish and oceans and all the universes and grass and trees and water and atoms. Paul says even the unseen powers, the unseen realm are made by Jesus, through Jesus, and they're for Jesus, and they're under Jesus. I want you just to catch this as we get going today. Thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities is a way of Paul expressing the fallen heavenly host or the demonic. At creation, every single angel, they were good and they were perfect and they were beautiful and they were loyal. And yet at least one third, it would seem, rebelled against God and joined Satan trying to overthrow God himself. So are the demonic powerful? Yes, but they're created. Absolutely. And the song says they are below Jesus. The devil might be the prince of this world, but Jesus is the king of kings and Jesus is the Lord of lords. It says in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. God did not just create the universe, set up some rules like physics or mathematics or gravity or fill in and just sort of wind up a clock and walk away. God's involved now. 
Jesus, one person said, is the rationale and the rhythm, the reason. He's the system behind all the systems. He's not a force. He's not in creation, but he keeps all of creation together. He is a personal God involved. I love when one theologian said, Jesus keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. He's the controlling factor in all of creation. Okay, so there's this song, and the song, then there's a shift, and it's sort of like we move from creation, then we're moved really quickly to what we would call new creation, uh, the new move of God. Easter is now coming into focus. The epicenter of history is getting closer. And see, Jesus isn't just creator and sustainer, but also he's present. But deeper than that, he's also the one that lived, died, and came back from the dead. And out of his resurrection, a new family is born. Verse 18, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. So Jesus is the source of the church. Every single one of us who are Christians, right now, if you're watching, we are all connected to each other because we share one Savior and we're all possessed by one Spirit. Every Christian in China at this moment, every Christian in Southern Sudan right now, every Christian in Indonesia, all the Christians down the way at Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa or Hebron Christian Reform in Whitby or People's Church in Toronto or Grace Presbyterian downtown, any Christian that's loyal to Jesus, and knows, we are all interconnected. And even more mind-blowing is every single person who's died who is in Jesus, even though they're dead and in Jesus' presence, we actually are connected as one family. So Jesus is the source of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Oh, and that's a good side note and a good reminder. Church is about Jesus, not about our preferences and not about us. So the song goes from creation and even pre-creation and who Jesus is and his role to Pentecost when the church is born. And then between these two bookends, the cross suddenly appears and the battlefield shows up. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything Jesus might have the supremacy. Two things. Number one, why do Christians meet on Sunday? We meet on Sunday because we're celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came back to, from the dead on a Sunday. Jesus is risen from the dead. And so the same for us, we who know him. Pring, you could say that spring is going to be the permanent state. Jesus is going to bring us physically back from the dead. It reads like this in John 14, 19. Because I live, you're going to live also. But it's that second idea, the battlefield that gets so close to home when you read that word supremacy. Jesus has through his death on the cross and then his resurrection conquered, subjugated, vanquished death, sin, and the demonic. He's the only one who's come back from the dead. No one else in history can tell us actually what's on the other side except him. He's the supreme authority over the whole of life and death and the human story. Jesus has conquered and rules over the great enemies we all face. Jesus has brought what's in the future into the now. And at the center of that war is the devil and all those demonic angels. And when Jesus said it is finished, he was taking supremacy over them. And if you want to know actually the power of this, just flip over the page to Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, the demonic, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the what? Oh, there it is, the cross. Now disarm means take off, put off, strip off. Jesus strips the power and authorities of their power, their importance, their potency. Anything that would make us fear them, worship them, be owned by them is broken. 
And I've preached this many times before. He also didn't just dis- disarm them. He triumphed over them. Now, this is such an epic and such a cool image. When a Roman general or a Caesar conquered a nation, they would return to Rome and they would walk at front in the front of their army. And then their army, the victorious army, would walk behind their general or the Caesar. Then, ready, behind that army, the victorious army, the king of that other nation or army would be in chains. And then those left who had come from his army were all in chains. They would walk through, ready, the streets of Rome. And all of Rome would show up and mock them and pelt them and throw things at them and say, you're defeated, you're defeated, you're defeated. So what is being brought here is when Jesus was dying on the cross and declared it is finished and then three days later rose from the dead, he literally not only disarmed in the ultimate sense the kingdom of darkness, he also made Satan and every demonic being walk behind him and all of the heavens and the earth looked upon them and said, your dignity is removed, your splendor is removed, you're now weak and you're beleaguered and you're broken. You're not as powerful as you used to be. You're a defeated army. I love I discovered this years ago. I don't know from what traditional uh, African community this comes from, but there's an old African hymn that says this, Jesus is the conqueror. By his resurrection, he overcame death itself. By his resurrection, he overcame all things. He's overcome magic. He's overcome amulets. He's overcome charms. He overcame the darkness of demon possession. He overcame dread. When we are with him, we also conquer. Anyone want to say amen? You should be. See, many of us have asked, especially we who grew up in church, well, if the devil really knew that Jesus was going to conquer them through the act of the cross, why did they kill him in the first place? Well, either they were so blinded by pride, they thought they were going to win, or they didn't fully really believe it, or they knew it, but they didn't care because they were so filled with hate, which they are. This is why 1 Corinthians 2.7 matters. No, we declare God's wisdom, (laughs) a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time, there it is again, began. None of the rulers of this age, human or demonic, understood it. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. I love when one person wrote, this image captures what Paul calls the secret wisdom of the crucifixion. Jesus's captors dragged him through the city, stripped him naked, held him up to contempt, nailed the charges against him on the cross itself. But all along, I love this, God was doing it to them. God made them a public example by showing how utterly impotent they were before this divine demonstration of love and forgiveness and how utterly helpless they were to deter the divine power that raises from the dead. What appears basically to be ultimate defeat actually is the epicenter for the biggest victory in all of history. So put it like this, as Jesus lay dying on the cross, the demonic thought they won. They thought heaven could be stormed again. Humans would never be able to know God personally again. Personally again, there'd be no salvation. Sin, death, and their reign would now be a permanent state forever. But they were outmatched. They were outwitted. They were undone by the very actions that they put into play, both human and spiritual. And now Jesus declares it is finished and the prince of this world is being driven out. That's why the cross is a battlefield. Now that brings us, by the way, to that second image, the image of business. And it's connected to a word called redemption. 
And redemption is connected to a really uncomfortable, terrible experience called slavery. We learned about this in our last series in Romans, Romans 3.23, ready? For all humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the, here's the word, redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, redemption is a business term meaning to liberate or pay off someone, paying a ransom or paying a price. Now, here's how one person put it. In Paul's day, the word redemption referred to the way in which people could pay money to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner of war related to them. The connotation of liberating a slave through payment of a price fits perfectly with Paul's use of slavery image depicted in Romans that the whole human family is under sin. So you got to understand, the cross event is not just Jesus facing down Satan in the demonic hordes in some gladiatorial moment. Jesus also at the same time is walking into the slave market of life and begins the process of buying us back, paying, paying for us to come home, actually paying the ransom. He pays the price to set us free. And at the same time, he's actually removing the evil slave owner, Satan himself. In other words, in that moment, we get moved from darkness to light, guilty to not guilty, convict to friend, permanent bankruptcy to freedom, and from slavery to liberty. That's why Jesus says it is finished. So you've got the image of a battlefield, and you've got this image of a really difficult, evil business thing taking place, and Jesus redeems it. But we're not done. We now arrive at this last image, and it's the image of relationship. And if you keep reading that old song in Colossians, that's what comes up next. Colossians 1.19, For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus, here's the word, to not redeem now, new R word, reconcile to Himself all things, things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. When we embrace Jesus, we get relationship, we get peace between each other and more importantly, God. Jesus has reconciled with, reconciled us with God. He's ended the conflict between us. He's put us back on friendly terms. He's made us consistent again, compatible again. He's restored all of our lost, broken history. It's relational because it's reconciliation. I love when one person said years ago, the gospel of freedom says that only through Jesus can you be brought back into friendship with God and then with each other because he takes away the sin that separates us. Only through Jesus can we be brought back also into the original intentions God has for us. Serving the common good, serving God instead of ourselves, making culture, and through his grace, helping to right what's been made wrong through sin. If you keep reading the old song, it reads like this. Once, as humans, we were alienated from God and we were enemies in our mind because of our evil behavior. See, before Jesus walks into your life, whether you're really good, really kind, very nice, very spiritual, very religious or not, you're alienated, which means you're isolated. You're alone. You do not belong. You are not a child of God. You are actually foreign to God. You're not in a personal relationship with God. He might exist, but you don't know him. 
And the rupture is even more than that because actually we are enemies of God. I know we don't like hearing that, but the Bible is clear. Human beings who have not been saved are enemies of God because we live our life out of a position of sin, which is rebellion. One person said wrong thinking, which we all do, leads to vice. Vice leads to a further mental corruption so that the mind, still not even totally ignorant of God's standards, finds itself in the reverse applauding evil as good. We see this everywhere. People say, oh, that's such a good thing. And God says, that's evil. No, no, we think it's good. The only way to deal with the sin, the only way to deal with the hostility, the only way to deal with the false worship, the only way to actually restore not just a broken relationship, but literally a dead relationship, is through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus reconciles us. Jesus puts Humpty Dumpty back together again, though it's impossible. Jesus does work that's better than any psychiatrist or clinician could do over a lifetime. He is the great reconciler. He gives us personal relationship. That's why it says in verse 22, but now Jesus, now God has reconciled you by Jesus' physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, ready? Without blemish and free from accusation. Okay, that phrase without blemish goes back to last week when we talked about Jewish religious worship. One person wrote this, the image of being without blemish comes from the world of Jewish sacrifice. Animals offered in sacrifice to God had to be perfect, unblemished. So when a man offered an animal in sacrifice, he had to lay his hands on it in order to identify, uh, identify himself with his offering, ready, to express his aspirations to, he, to be himself holy and unblemished. So when a man or woman brought a sacrifice, it had to be a perfect animal because actually the declaration is just like this animal is good, I also want to be good. But Paul now basically is saying <clears throat> it's through the work of Jesus that we are now unblemished. We become the righteousness of God. So put it like this, in this one act, at the crux of history stands the cross where Jesus deals with all these barriers between us and God the Father. There he thought of us by name. Do you know this? He thought of your name. When darkness fell, when the whole unseen realm of darkness taunted and roared, when the Father turned His face, in that moment, He decided to make us friends. In that moment, He became Savior. In that moment, He walked into the slave market that none of us could get out. None of us had the ability to get out. And He paid the ransom and paid the price and got us out. In that moment, as He was laying dying, Jesus as a warrior begins to overcome all evil. There, Jesus as warrior drove out the prince of this world. There, Jesus as warrior spoiled the demonic's forever plans. He made mockery of them. He made a show of them in front of heaven and earth. He made a forever public display. I love how the message puts this. Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. This is such good news of great joy for all people because anyone can be given life and anyone can come home. And by the way, that's why Paul says to we who are Christians, he reminds us in the next chapter again in Colossians 2.6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, you continue to live in Him. Received. Uh, just remember this. What did you receive when you became a Christian? A set of beliefs? A new philosophy? A, a new software to live a different life? A new moral code? No, you received a literal person 
who is good news incarnate. When you cross the line of faith, when you proclaim your love and allegiance, your life to Jesus, when you begin to embrace his work on the cross, when you became born again, you were declaring that Jesus is the only one who could forgive sin. He's the only one who can deliver from death. He's the only one who can actually do all this work. When you said yes to Jesus, you proclaimed that all other worldviews and religious expressions are deficient. You embrace the narrow path, the way, the truth, and the life. You have declared you've truly met God who's found in Christ. And if Jesus, of course, is not God, then everything else above is basically illusion, fraud, or lie. That's why Paul reminds us, who did you receive? And this brings up the question again and again. Is Jesus just a good guy? A moral teacher? One path to God? A higher consciousness? A political revolutionary? No, no. You embrace Jesus who is the Christ, the Messiah, and Lord. He is God in flesh. So let me just say this, um, for the many of you who are with us, either online or in person right now, and you again might have Christian history, or you might be from another faith, or no faith, or you're in between, let me just say this um, directly to you. If you want to be free from darkness, Jesus is your answer. There is no one more profound and more powerful to deal with darkness than Jesus. If you want to have a personal relationship with God, Jesus is your only answer. If you want to actually have the power to see life change actually take place at a core level, that is the ability to say no to sin and also the ability not to fear death, Jesus is your answer. You just need to look upon the cross of Christ. And of course, he's no longer there because he's risen. And if you've never done this, I'm going to invite you again, no matter where you're at, no matter where you're watching this in the world or online somewhere or actually at a site, if you have never embraced Jesus in his work and you want him to set you free and you want a personal relationship and you need a power to break you out of where you're in bondage, then you have to come and ask Jesus to be your savior. And I'm going to invite you right now. You pray this, if this is you. If you've never truly crossed the line of faith, you say, dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm actually a slave to sin, death, and the demonic, and I cannot escape, and I can't get out. I do need someone to pay a price I can't pay. I admit the darkness is too strong. I need someone to save me. I admit I'm estranged from you. I'm alienated from you. Even an enemy towards you because of how I act and think and what I trust in. I need to be reconciled with you. So I'm going to ask you, Jesus, to bring, bring your power and remove the power of sin and the power and fear of death and the power even of darkness and the demonic in my life and just get rid of them now. I'm asking you, rescue me, Jesus. I want a new God through you, Jesus, personally as a friend. Make me clean. I accept your work on the cross. I believe you really died and really rose from the dead and I want to live with you now and forever. Give me, grant me eternal life and relationship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you did that, everything just changed. The power of the evil one has broken your life. The fear of death will not be the same. The, the ability to say no to sin is now present in you because Jesus' spirit just walked into your life. It is new. You are reconciled, you are redeemed, and darkness no longer has the power of you that it did two minutes ago. Call upon the name of Jesus. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He must now flee. Uh, for us who, uh, many of us, again, who are followers of Jesus, I just want to keep reminding us as we're preparing for Palm Saturday, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. 
that all of this is reminding us again that God is good and kind and involved and loves us. I just want to end this sermon reminding us that the image of the battlefield and the business image that's used in the relationship really is the core to these next verses. I just want to say this over you. I want to remind you and encourage you. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any power, nor height or depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found, that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, simply we want to say thank you, Jesus, that you, you obeyed the Father. Thank you, Jesus, that you had the ability to lay down your life and you did it willingly and you took it back up again. Thank you that you've driven out the evil one in the ultimate sense. Thank you that you've reconciled us and given us relationship. Thank you that you've actually redeemed us from a slave market we could never get out of. Your love is so incredible. Like I preached last week, I want to say this again, Holy Spirit, continue to warm our hearts towards Jesus, to celebrate him this week, to walk with him this week, to be thankful this week. And again, to the many watching who can't yet cross the line of faith, the blindness is still there. Would you begin to undo that so they can see Jesus? And yeah, we just continually pray that as we look on all the things you've accomplished, our worship would go up, our love would go up, our thanksgiving would go up, and, and you would prepare us for the holy things that are about to take place in the next few weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.